0: You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Amen. Amen. You all can be seated. You can open up your Bible, if you have one, uh, to Jonah chapter 2. Uh, we are taking five weeks as we start the summer to go through the book of Jonah, and uh I'm going to ask you if you've seen a particular movie here in just a second, but I don't want you to be embarrassed if you've seen this movie. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Convention, which had a protest against Disney when I was a kid, but my parents were rebels, and we watched Disney movies still. Uh And so I have seen this movie. I so... You can have assurance that I will definitely not judge you if you've seen this scandalous movie. But how many of you? This will help me to know if I need to explain. How many of you have seen the movie Aladdin? Can you raise your hand if you've seen? Okay. A large majority of you. Okay, my wife, that that helps me out, so I don't have to explain a lot of backstory. Uh, My wife and I went to see this week the new release of the live-action version of Aladdin. It's really similar. We enjoyed it. Uh, It's really similar to the cartoon version that came out when I was a kid. But as my mind has been soaked in the book of Jonah, there was one scene in that movie, the current one and the old one, that just popped to me, this time watching it. And it's similar in both movies, um, and I, I'll try not to spoil it for the few of you that have not seen the movie. But there's this scene where this character, a lad, in this street rat, as he's referred to, he he finds this genie in a bottle, uh, and he this all-powerful genie who can can uh, make his wishes come true, but only three. And there's this scene where that this evil character Jafar starts figuring out that uh, this street rat who's suddenly become a king and a prince, rather, uh, that it's really a sham, that he's not really who he says he is. And he has him thrown, has Aladdin thrown into the sea. Do you remember this scene? If you're tracking along with me, maybe from way back when you were a kid. Uh, he has him thrown into the sea in both movies, and he, he sinks down slowly to the bottom of the sea. And the cameras or the the cartoonists picture him down uh, under the surface of the water, sinking down to the bottom, and he's flailing and struggling and trying to get free for obvious reasons. And panic is setting in to him. He's he's struggling to break free of the ropes or the chains uh, that that have him down at the bottom of the sea, but he can't break free. And then suddenly, uh, magically, the, the lamp that the genie is in floats down and lands near him. And he sees it, and you can see this kind of hope light up in his eyes of maybe I can get out of this. Maybe he can rescue me. And he strives to get to it. He tries to wiggle over to it or flounder over to it, but he can't. Like he gets close, and then he just collapses, lifeless, passed out. I'm assuming on the bottom of the sea floor. But then in. Disney Magic World. Uh, the the he rolls over somehow, or the the lamp comes over to him and uh, touches his skin, so that the genie can come out of the bottle. And he realizes the plight that Aladdin is in, and he sees him there. He sees him lifeless on the the bottom of the sea floor, and he he's trying to figure out what to do. And he wants to help him, but Aladdin needs to make this wish and articulate it. But but he has all the power at his disposal, but he needs Aladdin to be engaged. And there's differences with the two movies here. But ultimately what happens is that the genie rescues him. And it's not at all because of anything Aladdin did. It's not because that he was able to get to the lamp or he was able to say the wish. Or it's because the genie had the power. And the genie rescues him and pulls him back up to the surface and, and lets him continue to live his life. And we're going to see in the book of Jonah today this man who literally sinks to the bottom of the seafloor, I think, or at least gets close. But we see in that movie Aladdin, in that scene, it was a powerful image to me, not just of Jonah, but of us when it comes to our spiritual state, that we are guilty, powerless, weak people. Who may strive to save ourselves, may think that we can save ourselves, but we are dependent on someone outside of us. Not just the genie, but the God of the universe to save us. And that if we are to be saved, it's going to be his work, not ours. It's going to be his act. It's going to be his doing, not ours. And thank God we have a God who looks at our plight, who looks at our weakness, who looks at our powerlessness and says, I will rescue you. you cannot rescue yourself. I will rescue you. And so we're going to continue in the book of Jonah today. We're going to pick up, we'll actually read the last verse of Jonah chapter 1, and then we're going to read the whole of chapter 2. There's only four chapters in this short story, and we're going to be halfway done uh, by the end of today, believe it or not. So this is a quick pace for us as a church. Um, But we're going to see that where we left off last week is that Most of you are probably familiar with this story. Jonah, who's been running away from God, who was told to go to Nineveh and and preach to them, he's run away from God and has gone out onto the sea, onto the Mediterranean. This storm has blown up. God has directed this storm. The sailors are panicking, trying to figure out what to do, calling out to their gods to no avail. And they wake Jonah up. And then through a series of events, ultimately they throw him overboard into the middle, middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And he starts to sink. That's where we picked up. That's where we ended the story. That the Lord appointed this great fish. We saw uh, to swallow him up. And we're going to see what takes place now. So follow along with me. In Jonah chapter. We'll start at chapter 1 verse 17. And then I'll read through the end of chapter 2. But we're going to see what happened beneath the surface of the Mediterranean that day. What happened. It says the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me, Upon the dry land, this is the word of God. There is a lot in this text, and we're we're going to uh, see. I think three sections I, I, I'll go through with us today as we walk back through this text. But we're going to see what happened underneath the surface of the Mediterranean that day. What what took place in Jonah with this fish and with God intervening? And I think the Lord has much that He would want. To say to us today. But the three headings that we'll, we'll go through the story, and just to give you a heads up, will be uh, three P words. I like to alliterate things when I can. Uh, but we're going to see uh, power, we're going to see things about prayer, and then we're going to see something about puke at the end, okay? And that's the most important part, believe it or not, so stay tuned for that. So power, prayer, and puke. Okay. Uh, the, the center of this text, and really of this whole book, I would suggest to you, comes at the very end of this prayer, the end of verse 9, where, where this whole prayer is culminating in it, this whole book has this as its center point, this hinge point in the story, is where Jonah prays from the belly of this fish, and he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. That this prayer culminates in that, right? He's praying, remembering these things that happened. And this is what the, the climax of the prayer is him saying. Salvation belongs to you. Like, You're the one who saved me. You're the one, if anybody's to be saved, whether it's from sinking in the sea or saved from their sins, if anybody is going to be saved, God, it's because you saved them. Salvation belongs to you. And it, so it's the culmination of this prayer, but it's also the center of, of the book. It's the turning point of the book. Like we are at the low point, quite literally, of this book, as we come to the end of chapter two, where, where Jonah went down to Joppa and he went down into the boat and he went down to sleep in the boat. Then he gets thrown overboard into the sea and he sinks and goes into the belly of this fish. He's getting lower and lower and lower. And it's at this absolute rock bottom that he utters this. Where he, he's knowing things that and saying things he's known to be true, that salvation belongs to you, God. And he knows from experience, which we're going to see, that that is true in his own life. That salvation, if it came to him, which it did, is because it came from God. But we know from this book that also if salvation is to come to anyone, it comes from God. If it's to come to these sailors, as we saw last week, it's salvation that comes from God. If it's salvation that's going to come to this evil city of Nineveh, like we're going to see next week, it's because salvation comes from God. Salvation belongs to God, and he is the one who gives it. And so when when Jonah utters this prayer, this culmination, it's the center of this book. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We're seeing rich theology here that ultimately God is the provider of rescue no human being provides it no human being is capable of providing rescue other than god himself and to make this sink in to Jonah and i think often to make this sink into us in our life that he's the one that holds salvation he's the one who gives rescue oftentimes what god does is it to make this sink in this reality is that he actively works to make us feel how powerless we are He orchestrates things in our life. He orchestrates circumstances on purpose sometimes, even when they're painful. He orchestrates them in our life to make us feel how powerless we really are. So that we can understand how powerful he is. That we're under no illusion anymore that I'm contributing to this. That my wisdom is going to fix this. That my abilities, my creativity is going to fix this. He presses us to feel our weakness. To feel our inability to fix the situations that we're in. Or to heal ourselves, To rescue ourselves from the plight that we find ourselves in. And you see that in this story. You see God doing that with Jonah. You see that he's pressing him down, and pressing him down, and pressing him down. God is actively doing that to bring Jonah to the end of himself. To realize there's nowhere else for you to go. There's nothing else for you. You're like Aladdin on the bottom of the sea floor. You have no ability anymore to do anything. And if you're going to be saved, it's because I save you. If you look back, if you've been here, or you could look back through this story later, even the parts that we've already read, you see that God is actively working and pressing down on Jonah in this story. God's directing it to make him feel how weak he is. You go back and read in chapter 1, God is the one who whipped up the storm. It explicitly says that. He's the one who whipped up that storm on the Mediterranean. Jonah in his prayer even here, did you read the start of chapter 3 then? He talks to God and says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Then he says at the end of verse 3, he calls them your waves and your billows. But he's remembering that, man, God has orchestrated all of this. God is the one who whipped up this storm that made it necessary for me to be thrown overboard. He's the one then, as I'm in the water, is sending more waves over the top of me. He is the one who's blowing more wind over top of me and letting me sink. He allows Jonah, I think you can piece together from the content of this prayer, he allows Jonah to sink. I don't think when he was thrown into the sea that, that this fish just swooped him up right on the surface. Like, by the content of this prayer, I'm talking about weeds being wrapped around his head and being down at the roots of the mountains. It seems like he, God let him sink till he felt trapped, till he literally was helpless. And hopeless to save himself. And he's doing all these things. God is orchestrating these events and these circumstances to make it undeniable to Jonah that your salvation is coming from my hand. Not from your ability to wiggle out of this or to swim to the coast or your ability to do anything. But it is coming to you from me. It is coming from my hand. God does this with countless characters throughout the Bible. I was trying to think of people within the Bible that you may be familiar with. That God pressed to the point of weakness where they had no choice but to, to say and to acknowledge, I can do nothing to fix this. I can do nothing to rescue myself. I can do nothing to provide. I've tried everything. I can do nothing. A few examples just to think about outside of Jonah. Think about when God had promised Abraham and Sarah a son. They were 100 and had tried for years and years and years to have children and had gone through sketchy, creative means to try to have heirs and children, and it was not happening. And God was pressing them to realize, if you're going to have a son, it's because I'm going to place a son in your womb, Sarah. Think about Joseph as you get to the end of Genesis. Joseph was rotting, in a sense, in a prison because of things that were done to him, sitting captive in a prison, waiting for God to rescue him, waiting for God to do something to get him out of there. He, he had no capacity to get himself out of that prison. Think about the whole nation of Israel. When God rescued them out of Egypt, God on purpose brought them up to the edge of the Red Sea, trapped. And had these chariots and these, these Egyptian armies coming after them with all the power that was known in the world at that time. To a bunch of people who had no ability to fight back. And God wanted them to feel helpless. Wanted them to know, if, I'm gonna, if you're going to be rescued from this situation, it's because I'm going to do it. And so God parted the Red Sea and let them walk through. That's not their doing. That is salvation coming from God. You think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are tied up and thrown into a fiery furnace that killed the people who threw them in. It was so hot. If they were getting out of that, it was not because they had skin that didn't burn. It was because they have a God who can keep them alive in the midst of fire and who would walk with them through it. You think about in the New Testament, Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh that he asked God to take away and to take away and to take away, and God didn't. And God let it stay in his life. And he said, I want you to know your weakness, Paul. So that you can know my power. And you see this over and over again. You see it in the life of Jonah. That God lets his powerlessness sink in. Let's Jonah's powerlessness, his inability to save himself sink in. But he does it so that Jonah, when he is rescued, cannot deny that it came from God. I remember the first time I think I felt my absolute powerlessness as a human being, and I've told this story before, About I'll tell it again, was at the death of our daughter, who we had died halfway through pregnancy several years ago. And we were not expecting that. We go into this ultrasound room, and the, the sound tech just walks out, and doesn't say anything to us, like the joyful news you're expecting, and this doctor comes back in and says that there's no cardiac activity. And I remember for the first time in my life, like smart Mark, creative Mark, who can try to fix things and and mend things that are broken. I cannot do anything to bring her back to life. I cannot make her heart beat. I can can pray out to God, but if she's ever going to be alive, if she's ever going to be raised from the dead, it's because salvation belongs to God, not because it belongs to me. There are many times in our life, not just with death, but with many situations where God presses us through desperation to points where we cannot do anything. We are powerless to do it. But he wants us to see that in your powerlessness, you have a powerful God who can intervene. If rescue is going to come, it comes from him. We see in Jonah's story and we see in our stories that when we have these painful experiences where God is pressing us to feel how weak we are, it is not a sign that God is blind to our situation. God sees Jonah in the water. God hears him when he prays to him, but he lets him sink because he wants him to feel his weakness. And when we have these situations where we have tried, where we have stretched ourselves, where we are pressed and tried to fix things, but God doesn't allow it to get fixed, those are intended by God to humble us. They're intended by God to make us remember lest we forget how small we are, how weak we are to heal things, to fix things, Ourselves, And that if salvation is going to come, if healing is going to come, if provision is going to come, in this situation, is going to be a gift from him. I think of people probably in this room who, for example, are struggling with depression severely. And you've tried everything. You've tried counseling. You've tried medicine. You've tried different studies. You've tried all sorts of different things. You've tried memorizing passages. You've tried all these things. And God is not providing relief from it. He's, he's intending, amongst probably a myriad of other things, to help you feel how small you are so that you can continue to cry out for him. So you can continue to cry out for him to provide healing. Think of people in this room I know who have diagnoses of cancer right now. Like people who have death knocking at their door, figuratively. Who have no ability to heal their body. They may have surgeons to talk to and doctors to talk to, but they cannot heal their problem. They cannot fix their bodies. God would want to teach you. He would want to teach us as we walk alongside of you how weak we are, how dependent we are upon him for salvation, upon him for healing. Think of people who are in marital situations where you feel like you have tried everything. You've done everything as much as it's up to you to to make this marriage work, to make this relationship work. And the the other partner or the situation in general is not being healed. It's not being fixed. God will want to help you remember how small and weak you are so that you continue to cry out to Him. The God who has raised Jesus from the dead can heal marriages. He can heal what is broken. If healing is going to come, it comes through Him. Not through you saying the right things or you doing all the right acts, but it comes from Him. Salvation belongs to Him. We like to live with this false illusion that we have more power than what we really do. That, that if I just think well enough about this thing, if I just pray hard enough about this thing, if I just get creative or innovative, if I'm just diligent to do what God calls me to do, that everything's going to be fixed. And that could not be further from the truth. God would want sometimes for us to be stripped away of any illusion of our power make us feel how small we are, to feel how weak we are. And that could feel like God's just being manipulative with us and hurtful to us, but he wants us to have proper perspective of ourselves so that we can have proper perspective of him. To know that we are weak, but he is strong, as the little kid's song says. If we are to be saved from harm, if we're to be saved from hell, which we'll talk about at the end, that salvation must come from God and Jonah knew that and he God wants us to know that by recording that core part of this book in this prayer that salvation belongs to the Lord he is powerful to save and if saving is to come it comes from him from start to finish. He's the one who sent the fish. he's the one who somehow I don't even know how this works keeps Jonah alive inside of a fish for three days. He's the one we see at the end who tells the fish to spit him back out not in the depths of the sea but onto the land. From start to finish, he's the one who is providing salvation. Salvation belongs to him. So we see a lot about power here and powerlessness. And sometimes when we hear things like this, that salvation belongs to God, if if he's the one that has power, we have none, that can tempt us to start to be cold towards God. Feel like, he's just going to do what he wants? Like, okay, he has power to save. He, he will do it if he's going to do it. It can tempt us to start to feel distant from him, to start to feel like, what is the point of praying to him? Like, if he can give salvation to who he wants, when he wants, how he wants, why would I cry out to him? Why would I ask him? He should just do it. But interestingly, the, this tempt, this. Deep theological truth, salvation belongs to the Lord. He has all the power. That, seeing the obvious, that comes to us in the context of a prayer. Did you note that? It's not just some theology book. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the culmination of a prayer, of a desperate prayer, of a a deliberate prayer from Jonah to God saying salvation belongs to you. And so we learn from this chapter a lot about praying to this God who holds the power. Praying to this God who is powerful to save when we are weak. And I I find it fascinating that the author of this book, whether it was Jonah or somebody else, they don't care when we get here to chapter 2 about describing to us the biology of what happened here of how the the stomach was big enough and why that fish would have actually been in the Mediterranean and and how he could have stayed alive and had oxygen to breathe and all these things. The author does not care about that stuff. But what they do care to convey to us is what was prayed inside the fish. What what was said to God inside of that fish long ago. And you note here some interesting things about prayer. And then we'll, we'll walk back through this text and see what Jonah actually prayed. But you see, I, I would use the illustration of this. It's kind of like nesting dolls. Do you know what nesting dolls are? There's like a thing inside of a thing inside of a thing. Uh, in this prayer that Jonah prays, and that's recorded for us, in this prayer that he prays from inside the fish, that's how it starts, right, in verse 1, he's actually, most of the prayer, referencing prayers he prayed while he was out in the water. Did you catch that? He's praying from inside the fish, but he's recounting what happened back in the water before he was swallowed up. And he's recounting even prayers that he prayed while he was out in the water. So he's praying to God from the fish, but he's talking about prayers that he prayed while he was out in the water. And we see as he recounts this, as he recounts what took place to him, and prays to God, we see some things about what took place. We see Jonah describing to God, as if God didn't know, but he's recounting to him, and recounting to us, as as recipients of this, what happened to him, while he was in the water. Before he was swallowed. And you see terms. It's a, it's a poetic prayer. But there's terms in here that help us get a grasp of what took place. You see in verse 2. He talks about how he was in distress. Right? You see that. He talks in verse 2 about how he was in the belly of Sheol. It's this idea of like this fatalistic underworld. This realm of death. He says that, that he was
1: in, in the belly
0: of that. He says he talks about how he I would say that I think Jonah was quite literally drowning. That that he talks about how he was thrown into the deep. He was cast into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And he talks about how the floods surrounded him. He's not just at the surface, still breathing fine and this fish comes. He's saying, I'm down into I was down into the heart of the sea. And he talks about how these waves and these billows had passed over him. He talks about how the waters had closed in over him. The floods surrounded him. He talks about being down at the roots of the mountains. That's like as low as you can go uh, in elevation, down to the very, very bottom. He's, he's drowning, I believe. I, I think he's near death, which would be obvious at that point. He talks about that, that God was uh, taking his life, or at least felt like that. that in verse 5, that the waters closed in to take my life. He talks about in verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It's this metaphor of like death coming over him and these bars that he cannot open back up. They're not literal metal bars down there, but it's these figurative bars of death coming over the top of him. He talks about his life fainting away in verse 7. He's feeling detached and distant from God in that moment of panic. He talks about in verse 4, he says, I'm driven away from your sight. And then in that, he's recounting from the fish, he's recounting in that moment in the water that he prayed some desperate prayers. That even as he was sinking, he was crying out to God in desperation. Back in verse 2, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. In verse 2, he says that he cried out of the belly of Sheol. I cried to you, God. In verse 7, he says that as his life was fainting away, he remembered the Lord. He, he, so even as death is coming to him, as he's sinking down in the water, he's crying out to God as much as you can underwater. I'm sure it was just from the internal mind and heart. He's crying out to God, these desperate prayers. And God's response, we know from this prayer, was that God heard him. He says that God answered him in verse 2. He, he, he's, he says that his prayers came to God, Right? As he prayed from the bottom of the Mediterranean, his prayers came to God in its holy temple, he says in verse 7. And as God hears those prayers, he sends this fish to swallow him up. He hears these desperate prayers of Jonah and he sends a fish to swallow him up, not as punishment. Sometimes we think of this fish coming as punishment to him, but as rescue. He shows mercy to him. He sends this fish to swallow him, to rescue him. And now, Jonah, so that was the the inside nesting to all the prayers that he prayed while he was out in the water. But chapter 2 is recording for us this prayer from inside the belly of the fish. And we know now as he's in the fish, I don't even know what that was like, but he's able at least to have some time to get some more deliberate prayers, some more thoughtful prayers organized that aren't just panicked and rushed and kind of scrambling, but he's able to think, he's able to evaluate, he's able to muse on some things and pray to God more fully, more in an informed way. And you see Jonah praying, things, praying in certain ways. I would point out a few things to you about how he prayed from the belly of that fish. He prayed with thankfulness in his heart. Do you see that even down in verse 9? He says, with the voice, he's anticipating future, but I'm sure it's true in the present in that belly too. He says, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. He has this thankfulness in his heart, even from that nasty belly of a fish, thankful that he's not out in the water. Thankful that God sent that fish to swallow him up and at least temporarily to rescue him. So he's praying thankful prayers. This made me think about the story. This story has lodged in my mind for years now that, uh, of Jesus when he was walking the earth. Luke 17 records this uh, scene where there were these 10 lepers, and Jesus heals all 10 of them. And they go to the priests, and they do the things that they need to do, and only one of them came back to even tell him thank you. And Jesus says, like, where are the other nine? And it is so tempting for us to, unlike Jonah, like when we have gotten to these desperate places and we cried out to God and he provides rescue, he provides healing, he provides uh, salvation, that we just go on with life. And we don't take time to recount those things and to tell him thanks and to praise him for the good that he's done for us, the way that he provided rescue. So Jonah prays thankfully from the belly of the fish. Jonah prays hopefully, too, with full of hope even from inside this fish. He, he's praying with confidence of the future. He knows what God's done to get him to the place he is, but he also prays with confidence of what is to come. I, I would want you to remember, with the risk of saying the obvious, he is praying from the belly of a fish. And we know the rest of the story. I don't think he did. But he's praying things, looking to the future, confident that God can continue to save, that God can even make his desperate situation even better, that that God will continue to bless him, continue to work. He's confident, you see, in verse 4, that someday he will look again upon the temple of God in Jerusalem. How he had that confidence, I don't know, from the belly of the fish, but he's confident, God got me here, God can continue to save me further. He's confident in verse 9 that someday he's going to be able to make sacrifices to God again from Jerusalem. That someday, we don't know what these vows were, he talks about in verse 9, but that someday he's going to be able to come through on the vows that he made to God. And I don't think he imagined doing that from the belly of a fish. But he prays with hopefulness in his heart that the God who has brought me this far will continue to work and can provide further rescue for me. And the last thing I'd point about about Jonah's prayers here is that he prayed biblical prayers, is the way I would say it. Like, if we had time, I would show you, but he prays the word of God in this prayer. Like, he would have been reading the Psalms as a boy and as a, as a young man, even as a prophet. He would have been reading the prayers of God's people from the Psalms. And when he prays to God here from the belly of the fish with no... Torah, no scrolls in front of him to read from the belly of the fish. He has these prayers in his mind and heart. And he, you hear him quoting the, these psalms as he prays back to God here. He quotes Psalm 31, Psalm 42, Psalm 69, Psalm 120, Psalm 142. He, he, you see him praying lines from these psalms and quoting them back to God in thankfulness. Charles Spurgeon, who I quote often, I love how he said this. He said, here is a man inside a fish with a book inside of him. I I love that. That that Jonah, as much as he was running away from God, he had God's word in him. And when he is pressed and when he has time now to meditate on the the, the rescue of God, he erupts with the word of God, praying it back to him. So we need to be people of prayer. We need to be people who pray desperate prayers to God. Like we should not just be people who just offer these rote, scripted, cold prayers to God. We should be people who, like Jonah out in the water, are praying these desperate prayers to God and realizing, I can do nothing about this. I must call out to you. I must cry out to you. You are the one who can fix this. You are the one, if anybody who can do anything, it is you. We need to be people who pray desperately to God and continue to do that even when he doesn't answer quickly. And he doesn't resolve things fast and tie it up with a neat bow. He let Jonah sink, and Jonah continues to cry out to him. And we need to be people who continue to to cry out with desperate prayers to God for our own life, but also for others in our life who are going through trials, who are going through difficulties. We need to pray desperate prayers to God. But like Jonah, we also, like Jonah praying from inside the fish, we need to pray deliberate prayers to God, too. We ought to not just have our prayer life only be in these moments of crisis. Only in these moments of panic where I cannot do anything, I'm pressed to my limit, now I'll pray to you. Like We ought to be people who remember even in the calm times that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that we're learning about him, we're teaching our heart that even before the crisis comes. So in the midst of the crisis we can have true thoughts, we can orient our hearts in the right way as we cry out to him. Jonah, prior to this prayer, prior to being thrown into the water, is eerily silent in this story when it comes to praying to God. He waited till the moment of crisis in some ways to cry out to him. But may we not be that way. May we be people who are praying to him constantly, regularly, deliberately praying to him day by day by day. Not waiting for those moments of crises. And I would encourage you, like Jonah did, as I'm sure he heard the Psalms read and listened to the words of these prayers in the Psalms, I'd encourage each of us to listen to how others pray, to read prayers that are in the Bible, to to get prayerful words and terms and phrases into our minds and hearts in the times of calm so that when the times of crises come, we have fuel to pray. We know what to say, even if it's muffled, even if it's through tears. We know things that we can say to God. I think what we pray in crisis is usually things that we've internalized in calm. The the things that we've learned about God, the phrases we've used to talk to him. So we should pray before crisis in a deliberate way. But may we also be people like Jonah who pray on the other side of crisis. Who don't just pray to him desperate and then when he heals, when he fixes, we just forget. We just move on. But may we recount to him. May we tell him, man, you did this for me you did this for me, thank you for this. Thank you for this. We've, we've been doing prayer times on Wednesday during the lunch hour from 11 to 1 the last several weeks in here. I'd encourage any of you to come. We're going to do it throughout the summer. But a couple weeks ago on one of the Wednesdays, I just walked around this room. I don't know what portion of the hour it was that I was in here. But for a long time, for whatever reason, I felt prompted just to pray and thank God and thank God and thank God. And think through all the things in my life I could think through to thank him for the people he's put in my life, the way he has fought for me, the ways he's provided for me. And that was good for my soul in unspeakable ways. And I would encourage you even today to take some time, to set aside time as a person, as a couple, as a family, to recount to God the things you're thankful for. To not just see him as some emergency contact, but to see him as the God of the universe who has saved you, who has provided for you, who has has shown his power in your life. So we've seen the, uh, the power, we've seen the prayer. Now to the third one, the puke. Uh, this story, this part of the story, this chapter two, ends with Jonah on dry land again. It, it ends with him on dry land again. Most of this chapter is what words that were coming out of Jonah's mouth, it ends with Jonah coming out of the fish's mouth, right? Onto dry land, onto the, the, the solid ground once again. And friends, this is a wild story. Like, you may have read it and heard about it from since when you were a kid, but this is a crazy story. When you think about what happens, that this guy gets thrown out into the sea, middle of the Mediterranean somewhere, and is sinking down, and a fish literally swallows him. A fish directed by God, not just some random accident goes and finds this guy underwater and swallows him, he stays alive for three days and then God tells the fish where to drop him off, tells him where to take him and has it vomit him out on dry land. This is a strange, it's a true story, but it is a strange story, but we believe it as God's people. It is true. But may I tell you something? We believe a story that is way crazier than this one. Like, we believe a story that is way more wild than a man getting swallowed by a fish and puked up on a seashore. Like, we know and we believe a story about a man who went into the grave and who was brought back to life, into the land of the living, never to die again. We know a man who wasn't just spit out from the stomach of a fish, but who was released from the grave, don't we? And the... I mentioned the story, the story of Jesus, because Jesus tied his story of his death and resurrection to this story that we're reading about today. He tied it to it. I want you to look up on the screen. This is uh, the uh, mostly the words of Jesus. Matthew has a few comments here. But this is a story from Matthew chapter 12 where we hear the words of Jesus who had heard this story of Jonah that we're reading about today. And Jesus says this. Matthew records this, that then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that'd be Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, that's him talking about himself, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the of the earth the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold this is Jesus talking about himself something greater than Jonah is here this is awesome like this this is Jesus our Savior looking back at the story of Jonah and saying that was a sign to the people of Nineveh Like when Jonah got vomited, literally nasty, I don't know what it was like, out onto the shore and makes his way to Nineveh. I think, it's not recorded for us, but I think part of what got the people of Nineveh to repent was knowing what happened to Jonah. Was knowing that he had been thrown into the Mediterranean and that God brought this fish to swallow him up and like spit him back out on dry land and come tell us about him. What? Like, I, I think that was, it was a sign to them that this God wants us to know him. This God wants us to respond to him. The, the, the thing that happened to Jonah with the fish was a sign to them. But Jesus says that he is greater than Jonah. And that he was going to become a sign to people of all nations, including you and me. What ha- was going to happen to him was going to become a sign to us that we ought to believe the God who sent him. I want you to think about how he is greater than Jonah. He said he's greater than Jonah. That the sign that happened to him was even greater than what happened to Jonah. Jonah was suffering. He was sinking in that water because of his own sin. Right? Because he had run away from God. When Jesus went to the cross, when he went towards death, it was because of our sins he wasn't suffering because of things he had done wrong like Jonah was. He was suffering for our wrongdoing. Our sins were laid upon him. He is greater than Jonah in this sense. That Jonah came near to death. And stayed in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Jesus actually died. Suffered the wrath of God. Not just a near-death experience, but suffered the wrath of God and was in a tomb for three days. He was greater in this sense. God told the fish to go and vomit uh, Jonah out onto dry land. God told the fish to let him go. But on the third day, on that Sunday long ago, God told the grave to let Jesus go. He said, you're coming out of the grave. He's greater than Jonah in this sense. We're going to see next week that Jonah then, when he gets spit out onto the land, he reluctantly goes to Nineveh and tells them about this temporary relief from disaster that could come to them. The judgment's coming for you, but you can be released from that at least for a while if you will repent. But Jesus gladly, the resurrected Jesus, gladly comes to us. Gladly comes to us and offers us permanent forgiveness of our sins. And offers us eternal life with him forever. he is greater than Jonah. He had the sign of his death and resurrection on our behalf is greater than what happened to this prophet long ago. Death was what shook Jonah up. The prospect of death was what finally awoken him to change. When he was sinking in those waters, I don't know what he thought was going to happen when he told them to throw him off the edge of that boat, but I'm pretty sure he knew death would probably ensue. But when he came right up to it, he had regrets, didn't he? Like he, he got into a situation where he knew that on the other side of death is judgment. I'm about to go to the God who created me like the God who has told me things to do and who I have to fight. And I think it shook Jonah to the core to know that death was looming, that he was near to it. And it is something that shakes each of us up or ought to as well, that death is coming for us. It is something that in some sense just left to ourselves we should fear because we know we are going back to the creator who made us and who we have wronged, who we have rebelled against. But on the other side of death, if we're just left to ourselves, on the other side of death is judgment. On the other side of death is hell. Like if we're just left to ourselves. And we, when it comes to the spiritual realities of life, we are spiritually dead already. We are like Aladdin on the the sea floor. Dead, unable to save ourselves, unable to rescue ourselves. And we are heading toward the God we have wronged. We're heading toward the God that we have rebelled against. And we can try to do things to get good standing with God. We can try to clean ourselves up. We can try to do good deeds. We can try to, to fix things ourselves, but we are powerless to do it. We are heading to a God we have wronged and we can do nothing about it by ourselves. But what we can do is we can cry out to the all powerful Savior Jesus. He is the one that salvation belongs to. He is the one who can reach down to each of us in our spiritual death and powerlessness and save us and say, I will forgive you of the wrong you've done. I will give you good standing with the Father. I will rescue you from the grave someday when it comes and it does wrap over you. I will rescue you from it and raise you back up with me forever. We can try to cry out to other potential rescuers, other potential ways to make ourselves right with God. But Jonah says that those are vain idols in verse 8. And that if we run to anything other than Christ, if we cry out to anyone other than Christ, we have no solid hope. We have no hope of God's love, of his forgiveness of his favor. But when we cry out to Christ, we do. We have confidence that he can and will save us. The Ninevites we're going to see next week, when Jonah finally makes it to them, they repented when they heard about the sign of Jonah. They changed. They, they put their faith, it seems like, in the Lord who had sent Jonah. And may we, and may you, if you're an unbeliever today, who's never put your trust in Christ, may you please respond to this greater sign than Jonah, the sign of Jesus who came and died on the cross for your sins. And who was raised up from the dead for your sake so that you could share in his reward. May you please, I would call for you to respond in repentance and in faith towards him today. And have confidence he will save you. He will rescue you. I want to end with this. This phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the core of this book. It's the core of this prayer. And as I was thinking about this phrase, a passage came to mind late last night from the book of Revelation. Uh, from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I think we may have this up on the screen. I want you to note down at the bottom here where it says salvation belongs to our God. John the Apostle, one of Jesus' disciples, had this vision of heaven where he was ushered even into heaven. And this is one of the things that he saw. He says that in heaven he saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is talking about Jesus. So John, when he sees heaven, they are crying out with a loud voice the same thing Jonah prayed from inside the belly of this fish at the bottom of the Mediterranean. That salvation belongs to God. And praise him that he has extended it to me. Like I did not do anything to get it for myself, but he has gladly and willingly given it to me. And I will praise him forever because of it. Amen.